and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Tom Keogh. AIMA is the global representative of the alternative investment industry with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2.5 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment universe, news, views, and analysis delivered by AIMA's global team, as well as a host of industry experts. So whether you're a hedge fund or a private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry, or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. Hello, and you're very welcome to episode 34 of The Long Short. A 60-year-old marketing rule which determines how investment advisors can market and advertise is changing. And firms that qualify have just over four months to comply with a regulation that runs to hundreds of pages containing opportunities and challenges for the industry. Given a firm's current practices, compliance with the new rule can be a significant process, and firms need to make sure that they are on top of this. As a measure of the importance of this topic, AIMA has been running a series of webinars titled the SEC Marketing 360, regularly drawing several hundred viewers. And my colleagues in the US tell me that industry events where this topic has been discussed tends to be standing room only. So we thought we would give it the long short treatment. And joining me today is my New York-based colleague Suzanne Rose, Senior Advisor in AMA's Government and Regulatory Affairs team, and Mike McGrath, partner at KNL Gates, to tell us more. Suzanne and Mike, welcome to the long short. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks for having me. So, Suzanne, let's start from the top then. Why have the SEC decided to bring out this new rule? Thanks, Tom. Well, as you mentioned, the existing rules governing marketing practices are woefully outdated. This new rule replaces the old advertising and cash solicitation rules introduced in 1961 and 1979, respectively, plus supplemental guidance provided along the years, but still out of step with today's world. Consider that social media did not exist and the internet itself was more than 20 years away. When the advertising rule was released in 1961, marketing meant TV ads, newspaper articles, billboards, and little else. These rules were definitely not written with digital marketing in mind. So as a result, compliance has been difficult to manage, to say the least. Policies have been pieced together from the original rules and almost 100 changes to interpretation through cases, no action letters, and one-off statements issued by the SEC. So this new marketing rule is written with a principles-based approach to compliance, replacing the current advertising rule's broadly drawn limitations. Thus, it marks a shift in rulemaking approach to this area. And contrary to popular belief, while the marketing rule does seek to create a unitary framework for advisor compliance, it is more than a mere codification of existing rules and guidance. Mike, Suzanne tells me that um, the uh, the rules itself run to over 400 pages, yeah, the proposals. Um, can you take us then through the high-level points of these rules? Certainly, Tom. So as Suzanne mentioned, uh, the, the, the core of the rule is seven principles-based prohibitions. And rather, running, rather than running through the seven, I, I will address them at a high level. These prohibitions essentially prohibit misleading statements in communications that are deemed to be advertisements by an SEC, a U.S. SEC registered advisor. Um, those misleading statements uh, could, for example, pertain to performance, 
They could, for example, pertain to a communication that identifies a specific holding or a case study in an advertisement. Um, but at, at their core, they are designed to ensure that communications are not misleading and are presented in a fair and balanced manner. But in addition to those principle-based prohibitions, there are a handful of very specific requirements in the rule, primarily pertaining to the presentation of performance in advertisements. And when an investment advisor includes performance in an advertisement, the investment advisor is required to show that performance on both, a, if, if the advisor seeks to show performance on a gross of fee basis, the advisor must also show it on a net of fee basis, showing the fees that were paid or would be paid by clients of the advisor. In addition, there is a requirement in certain circumstances to present performance across standardized timeframes, one, five, and 10-year periods, and additional requirements when showing hypothetical performance or the performance of an investment team that produced the performance at a prior employer. Um, so when thinking about this rule, it is uh, a little bit dangerous to view it as purely principles-based because there are elements of the rule that require showing um, certain information in certain ways. And in, in a lot of cases, that is what's tripping up clients. We understand what it is to not be misleading and to present information in a fair and balanced manner. But the specific requirements around performance are a place where advisors that are registered with the SEC should really pay attention under this new rule. Uh, Suzanne, then, how do these new rules differ versus that of its predecessor? A lot changed, as as it would in an overhaul like this. Um, look, the definition of what is an advertisement changed, casting a wider net for the definition, but providing far more leeway with what information can be included in an advertisement, under certain conditions, of course. Um, perhaps most notably, the marketing rule reversed the previous ban on the use of testimonials in advisor advertising and includes a clear framework for the use of testimonials, endorsements, and third-party ratings, replete with accompanying requirements, of course. Um, clarity and guidance have been provided for the use of social media in a manner that accommodates most advisors' practices and intentions. The prior guidance was of no comfort. My personal favorite, which has always presented a struggle for managers seeking to explain their strategy or provide a more holistic view into their performance, is the expanded ability to discuss specific investments. It's now known as specific investment recommendations when they were previously referred to as past specific recommendations and had a very tight framework. Um, of course, the marketing rule replaced both advertising and cash solicitation rules, so it's sort of a surprise merger. Unsurprisingly, there's less enthusiasm regarding the new requirements for performance presentations, and the SEC still remains skeptical regarding the presentation of hypothetical and predecessor performance. As a result, there are higher hurdles to present this type of performance information if you use it. I would say those are the high notes. Suzanne, Thank you, Suzanne. I, I would, if I could add one thing real quickly, sure. something that, that you touched on that I think is very important. Um, is that, that this rule, in essence, replaces over 100 uh, pieces of, of guidance that, that have uh, come out of the SEC and its staff uh, for the preceding 60 years. So, so you highlighted uh, specific investment advice, uh, which would be holdings or, or, or case studies in advertisements as one area where advisors have more degrees of freedom. Um, but I would also point out that that uh, establishes a standard that's somewhat more difficult 
for compliance officers to address. And, and by that, what I mean is um, compliance officers now have the opportunity to decide what is or is not a fair and misleading presentation. Uh, but that's also a burden in some ways, because under prior of guidance, course. there were a set uh, universe of safe harbors for presenting this type of information. Those safe harbors have been removed, um, as has the general prohibition on, on showing specific investments. Indeed. That's very good from the perspective of investor relations and marketing professionals, because it allows them to exercise some creativity in the way to show that information. But it's going to be a real challenge for compliance officers who will now have uh, an unlimited universe of, of opportunities to interpret the rule and may feel a little bit of pressure to do it in a way that, that is accurate and consistent with the SEC's expectations. Of course, the determination of what is fair and balanced often is a subjective one. And it's going to take advisors a while to get comfortable with the definition of fair and balanced and where the hardline boundaries are to that. Um, I hope it won't take enforcement actions to identify the absolute boundaries for some, though. And Mike, many other jurisdictions have had a consultative approach to rulemaking. So I would have thought that this then would be a welcome change in the U.S., you know, it, it, I, I have to both agree with that and um, and also mention that, that there are some areas where the industry is, is a little bit frustrated by this rule. Now, uh, in the first instance, I will point out that this is a rule that the SEC and its staff have been considering amendments uh, for, for, for many, many years. And uh, over two years ago, we did see a proposed rule, and this allowed a consultative process whereby the industry could give comments to the rule. Um, and, and the staff and the SEC did uh, make some changes to the, to the rule in, in response to those comments, but, uh, but also rejected a, a number of the comments. And I think that as, as relevant to, to this audience, the, the, the take home would be that the SEC and its staff really were concerned, um, at, not, not to the exclusion of other types of, of audiences, but, but were primarily concerned with the protection of less sophisticated retail audiences. And they appeared to be willing to um, place uh, additional burdens on managers that, that manage alternative uh, products or, or that manage um, uh, separate accounts for large institutions uh, in, in the interest of ensuring that there were certain limitations that could not be broached um, with respect to, to a retail audience. So um, there was a consultative element to the rulemaking process. Um, but now that we have the rule and, and now that that process is done, I anticipate that, that we will all be working with this rule as written um, and the guidance contained in the release for quite some time, uh, rather than seeing a, a number of, uh, of additional interpretations, at least over the next couple of years. Suzanne, this has been an exceptionally busy time for the funds industry in the U.S. with the SEC issuing a raft of new proposals over the past year, to put it mildly. Um, when we had our DC-based colleague, Daniel Austin, on the podcast last month, he mentioned that AMA's U.S. Government and Regulatory Affairs team, of which you are part of, has submitted over a dozen responses to various SEC consultations since the beginning of this year alone, and remarked that adding to this burden is the short comment period associated with many of these consultations. So did you have the same experience then regarding this rule? Well, this rule was a bit different. Um, it was a different commission, a different, it was comprised of a different um, chair as well. But that being said, 
if you go back through the past year, we have close to two dozen proposals now, with more to come as indicated by the recently released regulatory flexibility agenda. Many of these, many of these proposals, as you mentioned, have had notably short comment periods, though in some cases supplemented thereafter by a slight change to the due date or extensions to the periods themselves. In all, they hover anywhere between 30 to 60 days um, post-publication and not always contiguous periods, which is challenging when you're trying to gather data and input for responses by the comment deadline. So that being said, the marketing rule itself was proposed on November 4th of 2019. It gave 60 days from the date of publication in the Federal Register, which was December 10th of 2019. So comments were due by February 10th of 2020. But then additional feedback was requested by the commission, and it was given, with AMA and the MFA jointly submitting further responses on requests as far in as September of 2020. So it's definitely a different approach, but until existing proposals are final rules, it's hard to say what the experience ultimately will be. And Mike, the the rule itself was released, as as Suzanne said, in December of 2020, with the compliance date set for the 4th of November this year. So that's, what, 120 days or so as we put out this podcast. Um, Has that been enough time for the relevant parties that would qualify under this new rule to prepare themselves for the required changes? Well, if you were to ask the SEC staff, I think they would tell you that they feel this is, is more than enough time. (laughs) <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and to be fair, uh, I, I think that for firms uh, that, 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 that began the process of assessing what this rule means to them and, and the changes that, that would be necessary, uh, it, it probably is enough time. That said, uh, there are many aspects of the rule that, um, that, that do require some interpretation and some significant changes, um, and, and not all firms were ready to, to, to begin uh, addressing those changes at the time that the rule came out. At that time, there was a, a hope and, and in some quarters an expectation that additional guidance would be given with respect to the rule uh, prior to, to the compliance date of the rule. And now here we are uh, just a couple of months out and, and very little guidance has, uh, has been given. So firms, uh, many firms did delay or, or delayed in certain aspects of preparing for compliance at this point, there is a lot left to do, and, and many, many firms in the industry are feeling time pressure uh, to, to get that all done. Um, one additional point that I will make is, um, as, as Suzanne referenced, the, this rule does replace a prior rule that imposed requirements with respect to the engagement of uh, solicitors on, on behalf of, of an advisor, and in addition, extended requirements not only to uh, solicitors that are engaged to um, to solicit separate account clients, but also to placement agents and and other uh, solicitors that uh, help in in the marketing of private funds. That requires participation and engagement with placement agents, and that's an area where really advisors aren't acting alone. They need to, in in some cases at least, repaper placement agent agreements and establish arrangements with placement agents for oversight of the placement agent activities by the advisor. Um, I think that many firms and perhaps the SEC staff as well did not appreciate uh, a couple years ago that that's a process that does not happen quickly and one that is is a little bit delayed. So to to those on the call uh, that are are listening to this well in advance of the compliance date, that's an area where I would suggest 
uh, they focus resources in the short term because if you don't engage in those conversations with placement agents until a month or two before the compliance date, that's going to be very challenging to get done on time. Yeah, the other thing I'd add to that is I, I, I don't look at this as, as some sort of measured delay. Look at what's happened since this rule was released. You look at the 18 months that was given for implementation, so up to the compliance date of November 4. Look at what's happened in the past year and a half. Um, it would be challenging under the best conditions to be able to focus just solely on this and go through everything to get it in order in, in time, but then add to the mix um, market conditions, the pandemic and so forth. You can understand why this may not have been top of mind. And instead the longer implementation period was looked at as some time to get ready, but here we are. Indeed, here we are. Um, uh, Mike, are you seeing or hearing about any fund managers working under the new rule as of yet? So, so Tom, I, I have, and there are a handful of fund managers that we work with that have elected to come into compliance with the new rule early. And, and that's uh, expressly contemplated in the new rule. A manager can come into compliance with the rule uh, at any point um, after the, um, the effective date of the rule as long as the fund manager does come into compliance no later than November 4th of this year. But I will say that that is a distinct minority, probably less than than 5% uh, of the clients that we work with that have elected to come into compliance early. Um, and, and Suzanne just made a very good and very important point about um, all of the things that, that managers have had to deal with over the last year and a half. Um, there, there, there really has not been a lot of bandwidth to accelerate the timing of compliance with this rule, even at managers that I spoke with a year or a year and a half ago that at that time had plans to come into compliance early to take advantage of some of the, um, of the relaxations within the rule. They have ultimately had to delay that, that date out into September, October or November of this year. One thing to add as well, Tom, your um, the listeners may not be aware of, is that the rule is an all or nothing proposal in terms of implementation. You couldn't start implementing it, picking certain spots that you wanted to comply with and practice under the existing rules for the rest of it. It was all or none. So you... Um, the, the process of planning for this is a bit more daunting. It couldn't occur on a rolling basis. This fall, the 8th Annual EMA Global Investor Forum will be returning in person to the Ritz-Carlton Toronto on October 13th and 14th. Last year's event virtually convened over 425 attendees from 26 countries, making it the Global Investor Conference for the Global Association. This flagship investor conference will convene institutional allocators, family offices, managers, and service providers over one and a half days, with one-third of delegates being investors. PSP Investment CIO Edward Van Gelderen, Chairman of EMA Global Investor Board, will be welcoming you with a keynote and panels discussing private market allocation trends, the global impact of ESG, diversity, equity and inclusion, digital assets, and more within the hedge fund, private credit, and private equity worlds. So join leaders from Blackstone, IMCO, Bridgewater, BlackRock Alternative Advisors, OP Trust, University Pension Plan, Morgan Stanley Wealth Management Canada, 
and more at the Ritz-Carlton Toronto in October. Yes, yeah, so so taking taking that point, uh, Suzanne, and um, and also um, Mike mentioned a challenge being you know having to have that conversation with placement agents, you know, um, really having having those conversations take place now. And um, what are the other challenges then that fund managers are facing in implementing these changes? Well, other than the obvious challenges of getting together with stakeholders and reviewing this all in detail to come to a level of comfort with how to approach some of the newer um, approaches to advertising, I would say, you know, in terms of the rule itself, the, the hot spots have been, you know, certain aspects of the rule could use additional clarification and could ultimately spur requests for no action relief. For example, hypothetical performance could really use further clarification. And I can tell you that when working on this, this is one area where the commission showed the most concern from the IM staff to the commissioners themselves, and it resulted in months of focused dialogue. You know, but they seem genuinely interested in understanding the legitimate use of hypothetical performance in its many forms. And I think the final rule reflected that to a degree. The entanglement standard for indirect communications is another area that's causing a lot of confusion. Um, The commission was clear in stating, just to paraphrase, that an advisor would not be held accountable for unapproved changes that a third party may make to its material. Um, But the ever-present facts and circumstances judgment statement was also made, and there are additional passages on solicitation that appear to muddy the water on to what extent an advisor can review a document that's being produced without being seen as having a material role in its production by that third party. And then, of course, there are certain requirements for net performance to be shown, particularly where fees essentially would be modeled. And those are concerning because they'd appear to be misleading at face value, and false and misleading are always at the heart of the SEC's concerns for advertising. It's going to take advisors a while to get comfortable with the SEC's definition of fair and balanced and the new principles-based approaches to certain marketing material content. And while it's a welcome change, FAQs and examples will go a long way in addressing this. Suzanne, I I have to agree with everything that you said, but I... I want to highlight one of the points that you made very early on in your response, which is the importance of engagement with stakeholders. And one of the aspects of this rule that's a little bit different from some other rules that we've seen is that it doesn't only introduce interpretive challenges um, and, and the need to establish or amend a number of internal policies, but it does require changes to many marketing materials. Um, and, and some firms have dozens of these, some firms have hundreds of these that have been used routinely over the preceding several years. And, and that really requires engagement by a variety of, uh, of business units, not only the marketing group, but also the group that's responsible for the calculation uh, and presentation of performance. And, and getting all of that together is a very heavy lift for many managers, um, and, and that needs to be coordinated. So, so as an example... Um, I have a number of clients who, who had planned to uh, wait until November to come into compliance with the rule, but instead are electing to move that up a little bit to October so that they're not in a situation where they issue 100 pieces of material um, demonstrating September 30th numbers and then reissue them again a couple weeks later. So that uh, is something that, that we didn't appreciate at the outset, but that has really been imposed by the marketing teams within 
managers because they don't want to reproduce those those materials twice in the course of a week. Um, that makes a lot of sense, but but this really involves so many different business units within uh, the the advisor, um, and, and that's been a big challenge at, at a lot of managers. So if there are investment advisors out there that are hearing this for the first time, what I understand from both of you is it's not too late to get started, but you really need to get a move on now, right, Mike? I, I, I was about to say it's never too late to get started, but I will say <laughs> that if you, if you find yourself in October and you have not started, then, then that would be a, a, a material problem. Look, it, it's, a it's not too late to get started, but... Um, if for, for firms that have not started yet, the, the recommendation, the, the, the first recommendation that I would make is do not let this issue languish in the legal and compliance departments of your firm. Immediately involve your marketing and, and your performance measurement and your investor relations teams, uh, because even if the, the compliance group is ready, uh, those other teams may not be ready if you don't give them enough time to make the changes that they need to make to come into compliance with the requirements of the rule and the new policies that you establish uh, to, to to satisfy those requirements. Yeah, Tom, writing policies and procedures is not akin to just complying with the rule. There's so much involved in this. And I, like Mike, I, I like to believe it's never too late, but time's winding down kind of quickly. It, there's less than four months and there's a lot of work if it hasn't been started, at least meaningfully. If it were me, I'd start by taking a few examples of existing advice, advertising material, mock them up to comply with the new rule, and then meet with stakeholders now as soon as possible. And that's management, IR, anyone you'd need data pulled by, such as risk, and show them what things would look like under the rule, as well as what additional content could be provided. It's very hard to have a conversation about changes without being able to illustrate them, not just discuss them in theory. You know, from there, you can get a collective agreement on core elements for advertising, and then get to work on writing policies and procedures to make those happen. Now, we've got the transition period. Obviously, we're working through it now as it goes into law, I guess, the 4th of November, right? 120 days away. Um, is there a grace period then if fund managers could not get everything sorted by the deadline? Or are we right now in this grace period, Suzanne? There is no grace period. Yeah. The, you know, um. the, the technical answer is certainly no. Um, yes. as, as a practical matter, we, we do anticipate that uh, the SEC staff understands that there are some areas that managers, even managers acting in absolute good faith, uh, will struggle with understanding and, and will struggle with implementing. Um, it, it is it is my hope um, and, uh, and my expectation based on some statements made by SEC staff that, that, that the staff will not be overly aggressive in bringing enforcement actions against managers who are acting in good faith to do this right, at least in the first six months to a year after the compliance date. That does not mean that you have a grace period, and we should be very clear about that, but, but it does mean that, that the SEC staff understands um, that, that managers acting in good faith may need some extra time to, to sort all of this out. Um, and and I, I would not view that as a safe harbor or a grace period, but, but there is an element of understanding that this, this is a hard transition um, and, and we don't anticipate that they will jump directly to enforcement actions uh, in November of this year. But they could. They could. They could. 
and Suzanne, then um, who qualifies? Um, you know, who is in scope? Is it just fund managers in the US who are in scope, or are others qualifying? Yeah. So all advisors registered as an investment advisor with the SEC are in scope. Exempt reporting advisors and other advisors qualifying for exemption from SEC registration are not in scope, but it's clear with this rule that best practices have been defined. Um, you know, and the others can use them as best practice guidelines, but their only obligation otherwise is to not violate the anti-fraud provisions of um, the Investment Advisors Act, the dreaded Rule 206 that applies to all market participants, regardless of registration status. Well, Suzanne, should, should we address which funds are in scope as well? Because I, I think that will be Absolutely. important to, to, to the aim of membership. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so... so all, all U.S. all investment advisors registered with the SEC, as Suzanne pointed out, are within scope of the rule uh, as it pertains to the marketing of advisory services, right? Separate accounts. In addition, any marketing communications or advertisements with respect to private funds, and that's defined as a fund that relies on Section 3C1 or 3C7 to be uh, offered and managed in the United States are also in scope. So these are hedge funds, private equity funds. Um, but but out of scope are U.S. registered funds for managers that, that manage mutual funds or, or registered closed-end funds in the U.S. And also out of scope are uh, pooled vehicles that are offered entirely and exclusively outside of the United States. So USITs and AFES, for example, are out of scope provided that they are not marketed into the U.S. on a private placement basis. Um, consequently, the rule will, for many managers, apply to some of their communications, but not others. That said, um, I, I, I echo and I endorse Suzanne's point that, that the rule establishes best practices that managers will most likely want to apply across the entirety of their marketing activities even if a handful of those activities, or or for a non-U.S. manager registered with the U.S. with the SEC, perhaps a a large amount of those activities technically fall outside of the rule. And Mike, what form of compliance do you think we're likely to see from the SEC um, regarding enforcement around the new rule? You did say that you know there likely be six month period. I mean, but you did say that equally, it may well be that enforcement comes in from day one. What what do you Right. Expect to see. Well, the, the commission certainly has the authority to enforce the the rule from day one. And I think that if they if they see managers that they believe are, are not acting in good faith or, or, or have not made it more precisely, have not made a good faith attempt to comply with the rule, um, I would I would not be surprised to see enforcement on that basis. But more generally, um, we anticipate that in the first six months to a year, the SEC staff, through uh, routine examinations and, and possibly through some sweep examinations, which are limited scope examinations on, on particular topics here on the marketing rule, will seek to gather information regarding the manner in which um, registrants are, uh, are complying with the rule. Uh, they will look for areas that, that they feel um, are, are best practices. They will look for areas where they feel, notwithstanding good faith efforts to comply with the rule, that managers are coming up short. Um, and in, uh, let's say, roughly a year's time, could be six months, could be 18 months, I would expect to see um, a, a statement from SEC staff 
uh, perhaps in the form of a guidance update or, or perhaps in the form of some other informal communication uh, that, that highlights areas that the staff feels uh, require some, some better, um, uh, better work from, 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 from registrants. After that happens, assuming that, that those, those initial steps are taken, uh, then I think that the staff will be more aggressive about identifying areas under the marketing rule that they feel managers have not complied with, referring those concerns to the SEC enforcement staff, um, who, who will then bring enforcement. Now, uh, Suzanne has pointed out, as have I, all of that is perspective. All of that is speculative. The SEC certainly has the authority to bring enforcement beginning on November 4th or, or even earlier for managers that come into compliance prior to November 4th. But we anticipate that there will be this information gathering period prior to aggressive enforcement actions, at least as to advisors acting in good faith to comply with the rule. Tom, this is a learning process for both sides. Okay, but that being said, they're going to watch this very closely. So anyone that thinks that because it's new or, you know, perhaps implying a bit of a grace period or that the SEC will go easy on this, it should should disavow themselves with those assumptions. They will watch closely. And as Mike referenced, they will come out with observations. You often see this in exam priorities as well as um, risk alerts that are released. But at the end of the day, they have the authority from day one of adoption of this rule to to pursue any concerns that they may have. Um, and I mean, in, in terms of adoption, I mean the advisor adopting the rule. Well, one more point that I would make on this, I know we're piling on a bit on this topic, but it's an important <laughs> one, is for, um, for investment advisors that, that are examined, um, shortly after the compliance date uh, of the rule, the, those advisors will certainly receive deficiency comments from the SEC staff regarding their compliance with the rule. If they do not address those comments fully and completely, I think that the SEC staff uh, on their next examination uh, would view that as recidivist behavior and put those managers sure. in a very, very uh, dangerous position. So, so for managers that do get examined, um, survive that examination without a referral to enforcement, <laughs> it's going to be extremely important for those managers to, to tidy up their practices and, and tidy them up uh, promptly. For sure. Uh, and Mike, for fund managers who are struggling with implementation around all of this, I guess they contact you guys, right? <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to disagree with that, Tom. Um, <laughs> and, and, and we've certainly devoted a lot of resources to, to understanding this rule and helping managers with, with implementation. But I do want to say um, that, that there are other resources. I, I think that Suzanne and the rest of the team at AMA um, have, have, have done an incredible job putting together not only webinars and, and working groups, but, but, but also a very impressive reference guide um, to, to comply with the rules. So, so while I will never turn down that call uh, from a manager, I, I will say that there, there's a, a raft of good resources out there that, that, um, you know, that, that, that are free, that are available, um, that managers may want to, to look to first uh, uh, before reaching out to counsel. And we leave the last word with you, Suzanne. So where can fund managers and other relevant parties that will qualify under this rule find out more about this rule? And we did mention at the top of the podcast, AMOS 360 series. So I'm guessing that is one such avenue. 
Absolutely. Um, there are a, a plethora of legal alerts and so forth that are out there. But uh, to break down the actual rule, that doesn't happen as often. And I, I credit Mike um, for a number of very successful and very detailed podcasts. I mean, uh, webinars that we've done thus far. As far as additional guidance from the SEC, don't go expecting any. However, Mike and I are actually working toward that aim right now by collecting um, questions to submit to the SEC because they did set up a dedicated email for the public to submit questions on the marketing rule. It just hasn't been used. You'll see there are two questions that are answered in the FAQ section. So without that influx of questions, they don't see themselves as needing to answer anything. Um, meanwhile, the industry had, as Mike indicated, um, perhaps waited a bit for additional guidance or color on how to approach some of these newer aspects of the rule. So we're going to try to break that, that logjam up a bit by submitting questions directly to the commission on behalf of AMA members. And certainly there's more to come for the Marketing World Series. And um, you know, we, AMA will continue to post resources on its website, whether they're AMA resources or third parties, such as those coming from KNL Gates. Well, all that's left for me then is to thank you both for your time today. Mike, thank you for joining the Long Short. And Suzanne, pleasure as always to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And for those of you who are looking to find out more about this new marketing rule, uh, which comes into law on the 4th of November, please go to AMA's website, www.ama.org. The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AMA.org. Thanks for listening.